Hi everyone, this is Nathan with People's Town Hall. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to the simple idea that our democracy is stronger and better when our elected leaders take occasion to meet with and listen to the people they work for. We are joining you virtually today uh, with Senator Ron Wyden and his constituents in Curry County, Oregon, which is on the Oregon coast. And I believe Senator Wyden is himself in Curry County. Um, and we are looking forward to a robust discussion of topics. We do not ask people's party affiliation. We don't ask who you voted for. We don't ask if you voted. If you are a constituent, you are represented by Senator Wyden in our nation's capital. Uh, we have a few folks here asking questions live on the video. Um, for those watching on Facebook, uh, we hope to get to a few of your questions as well. So if you're a constituent, feel free to share your questions and we will read them. Uh, Senator Wyden, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hey, Nathan, thank you. And thanks to everybody in Curry County who's going to be part of this discussion. Uh, I am, in fact, at the Coast Community Health Center here in Port Orford. This is part of my effort to throw open the doors of government to listen to people. Uh, I've had more than a thousand town hall meetings in all of Oregon's 36 counties. I just had a tour of the coast excuse me, the Coast Community Health Center, and uh, had a chance to catch up with uh, good folks like Rep. Uh, David Brock Smith. We've been working with him for years, working with him on a whole host of important issues for, uh, for the community. And uh, I just appreciate Nathan throwing open the digital doors of, of government this way, because we all know that Port Orford and Oregon are a long way from Washington, D.C. 3,000 miles away, and for some people, DC might as well be Mars for all the connection it has with them. And so what I'm trying to do is shorten the distance, and uh, what we try to do is practice what I call the uh, Oregon way. It's not about Democrats and Republicans, it's just about really getting things done. Now, what I've tried to do is always listen to the community, and Senator Merkley and I have been working on some real priorities for the community. We've had some successes like the $3.5 million for a new wastewater treatment plant for the Port of Brookings Harbor to sustain the future of the fish processing plant and the environment and create small business opportunities. Uh, big investment success, like here uh, at the Bandon Community Health Center, $850,000 to help build a facility that will let us meet the big gaps in terms of rural healthcare. Uh, the community conversations are always exactly you know, the same. And so we're looking at a promising ocean to rail proposal up 
Highway 101 at the port of Coos Bay. This is a concept that could take advantage of the Oregon Bay Area's natural uh, advantages to create jobs all along the South Coast. And as I say, it's the Oregon way. It's not about Democrats and Republicans. It's about shortening the distance between here and DC. <clears throat> Big thanks to Nathan and People's Town Hall for helping us to throw open the digital doors of government. And Nathan, let's have some fun and listen to folks in Curry County. Terrific. Uh, first up, we have Anne. Hey there. Good morning, Senator Wyden. It's really great to see you in Port Orford. I know that building. Uh, I'm a couple of blocks away from you. So thanks Good. so much for coming. Perfect. So um, I'm an author and I'm also president of our local Kamiopsis Audubon chapter. And I want to thank you this morning for your leadership in work in conserving our wild and scenic rivers. And in particular, for advancing the Oregon Recreation Enhancement Act, which will help to protect the headwaters of several of our cherished wild and scenic rivers from the threat of nickel strip mining. I'm really pleased to report that just uh, recently, several of our most affected downstream communities and counties, including Curry and Del Norte counties, plus Gold Beach, Cave Junction, and Crescent City, have all renewed their support for the Southwest Oregon mineral withdrawal part of this bill, which has long had broad and overwhelming support, as you know. Passage of that or the Ore Act and also your River Democracy Act are especially important for our river-rich corner of Southwest Oregon because the ancient geology underlying many of these headwaters also holds one of their greatest potential threats, which is mining. The minerals found here are low grade with lots of impurities and the quantities are relatively small and re require ransacking enormous landscapes to get at them. And so for that reason, they've long been uneconomical to mine. But local citizens are worried now that with new government subsidies and incentive programs for mining combined with the antiquated 1872 mining law that doesn't take into environmental concerns into account could undermine decades of efforts here in Southwest Oregon to conserve and protect our treasured wild rivers with their clean water and salmon runs. So in addition to um, urging quick passage of the Ore Act and the River Democracy Act, I'd just like to share a few thoughts about this mining law thing. Uh, you know, hard rock mining in Amer is America's most polluting industry and the only industrial use of our federal public lands in the West that's governed by a law that was written 150 years ago um, with no environmental safeguards, limited provisions for public input, and that gives away valuable public resources to, for free to foreign owned and multinational corporations. And I just think we cannot build a renewable and secure energy future without a modern mining law that provides for environmental protection and some assurance of accountability. Uh, more important perhaps, or just as important, is we need stronger policies and funding on research for less damaging and less carbon intensive metal sources. So for example, in the case of nickel, a recent report indicates we could get an additional 30% of our supply from resource recovery. And this kind of recycling is already happening. In the past seven years I've worked on this issue, the amount of uh, nickel being recycled in America has grown tremendously. Um, and so that's the kind of approach. I think it's a really cool approach to, to focus on. How can we get more out of this circular uh, life cycle analysis? How can we get more from resource recovery than keeping on ripping apart uh, landscapes that, that, are, that we care about, our public lands? And finally, 
there's some treasured places, and I know you know this, where the values of clean water and fish just outweigh this, the risks of strip mining. So we need to make sure there's a, a way as we transition to renewable energy that we don't destroy these special places in the process. So just to circle back, that's what makes your river protection bill so important to Southwest Oregon uh, to protect our clean water, our recreation economy, and salmon runs into the future. I'd love to hear about the status of these river bills, and I hope you'll think about this mining stuff in your uh, as you're working on in your capacity on the Senate, um, in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources uh, Committee. So thanks and, for everything. And you make a great case. <clears throat> you make <clears throat> a great case for what we ought to be doing here. And there's no question that rivers are a very powerful economic engine. They're a huge multiplier in terms of recreation, jobs, and all of the opportunities on the Oregon coast. And what I've come to feel is that we can <clears throat> have sensible policies that promote environmental values and create opportunities for people to make a good living. And that's what we're doing with river democracy. That's what we're doing with the protection bill that you're talking about. I think we're pretty well positioned to do both. And uh, when you weave into this, this question of minerals, uh, I think you highlight some really important concepts and part of them are in my American Energy Development and Growth Legislation, EDGE, which is the kind of law I think we can look at when you're talking about something like lithium, which would give us a chance to make batteries in the United States shape free of foreign countries, and that's important from a national security standpoint, and do it in a way that doesn't fudge on the key environmental principles. When you look at my EDGE Act, and I'd very much like your input, we say any company that is applying for this funding in an area like lithium, which is national security, it's renewable energy, they have to follow all of the environmental laws on the books, period, full stop. And we're getting a good reaction from sort of all sides on this because uh, there's recognition. First of all, I mean, you saw it during the pandemic. What did people really value? They valued being outdoors. And it was something that really helped economies as well because they'd go and they'd go rafting, they'd go uh, out, out on the water, they'd take a hike. They come back, they have craft brews, stay in motels and, uh, and make sure that, you know, they were buying gear and stuff, you know, locally. So the two river protection bills, I think, are in good shape. Um, my seat on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee gives me a chance to influence this. As chairman of the committee, I've made it clear to the leadership how important uh, I think these bills are. They are a winner for all of us who want to take a multiple use approach to resources. Recreation for years got short shrift and we're beginning to change that. And recreation and a clean, clean environment is good for business. And we're gonna push both of those uh, bills. You'll probably hear some people lobbying, for example, the River Democracy Act, that it takes private property. I'll make sure everybody sees the exact place in the bill where it specifically says you can't have those kinds of takings. So thanks for getting the meeting uh, in Curry County off 
in a kind of vintage Curry County approach to the Oregon way. You're not talking about Democrats and Republicans. You're talking about building on this community's God-given gifts, and I'm all in. Thanks, Senator Wyden, and just uh, thank you so much. And just to underscore your last point, I do want to say that we have always had bipartisan support for uh, especially the Southwest Oregon Mineral part of that bill. So thank you so much for building on that. Good, and a great way to start. And I think the fact that over the years, and you've worked with us and nobody ever talks about Democrats and Republicans is say, this is something that rallies people, brings them together. This is the Oregon way, it really helps. Godspeed God in your work. Thanks for joining us, Ann. Uh, next up, we have Holly. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much, Senator Wyden, for meeting with us. This is really amazing um, because something has recently come up and I, I was in conversations with my parents. I'm like, well, you should call your senators. And I just got this email about this town hall meeting and I thought, wow, this is a perfect opportunity. Go so for it. I know. Um, so I am a school counselor. This is actually my 15th year in school counseling. Um, I'm soon making a transition to be a therapist um, in a local mental health agency. Um, but my question is around um, student loan cancellation or forgiveness, preferably cancellation. Um, so um, again, 15th year in school counseling, I've been making student loan payments that entire time. Um, I still have about $45,000 worth of student loan debt. And um, I basically feel like I've just been paying off interest. Um, I've been really grateful, you know, during the pandemic, they've, they've done the pause on student loan payments. Um, that's been great. Um, however, I, I was really optimistic, you know, prior to the election, I was hearing um, things about possibly canceling portions of student loans. Um, Biden had mentioned like a, a 10, 10 grand, um, just cancellation, blanket cancellation across the board. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying to find out where we are with that. Um, I, um, because I have worked in public education, I do um, qualify for public service loan forgiveness. However, they're really fussy <laughs> and they do not make it easy for you to actually get your loans um, forgiven. Um, when I first began making payments, I was under a stand standard repayment uh, based plan and um, they didn't approve that payment plan at first, but but what they're doing with this, the new revisions and they're making a little bit more flexible forgiveness this year, they are doing that. Um, they're saying that they're maybe gonna count those previous payments that maybe didn't qualify. Um, so I submitted my application January 7th, <laughs> and I just recently received an update from them that um, didn't look so great. It, it only was counting like 29 of my over 150 payments that I've made. And granted, um, you know, the magic number with public service loan forgiveness is 120 payments. And so I'm just really frustrated. I'm trying to be optimistic because I, I, I contacted um, Fed Loan Servicing, the company that's managing um, the student loans. And when I when I spoke with the representative, she mentioned, you know, we're just trying to tell people to be patient um, because we are reviewing and we're going back through to possibly count those previously ineligible payments. But I guess um, 
I'm just, I'm trying to be optimistic, but I'm cautiously optimistic. I just, I just worry that even with this um, limited waiver that my loans won't be forgiven. And um, gosh, it would be wonderful if, um, I know Biden with an executive order could just for, um, cancel like 10, 10 grand worth of student loan debt. But I'm, I'm wondering where, where you are with that. If, if there are things happening, um, 50, 50 grand would be perfect for me. <laughs> So I, you know, that's just, it, it seems like a no brainer to me because um, I would invest that money in the economy. I know everyone would in, in that similar situation. Holly, did you just say you work in the mental health field? So actually um, at this point in time, I'm a school counselor. Um, and so I've been in education um, for 15 years, but I'm actually going to be moving um, to, to work as a therapist in a mental health agency. And all of those, um, employers would qualify under the public service so because one of the areas i've been looking at because we are really up against it in terms of mental health mm. the mental health needs were huge before the pandemic and they have mushroomed many times over um, and as the chairman of the finance committee i'm committed to passing a real overhaul of mental health legislation. The Surgeon General told us recently that for the average young person, the gap between diagnosis of symptoms and getting care is over a decade. And we had a young person uh, from Lapine High School tell us that at his school, more than 80% of the referrals to mental health professionals don't even go answered. So we really have our hands full. And one of the areas I've been looking at is something like, I call it public service, but public health service cancellation, so that people who are working in these fields that are a lifeline for the community. I mean, you've made very important points about the, the impact of these debts on the economy at large. I mean, you think about the economy now, all the challenges that, that we're having, and now all of a sudden people face the prospect of, you know, having to string along these huge debts that are like a boulder on their shoulders. I'd like to see us find a way, and I'm looking at this particularly, to do significant cancellation for people doing these lifeline public service kinds of jobs. I mean, I want to get as much relief to uh, students as I can. I just think if you look at something like mental health, where we desperately need people, where a young man from Lapine High School says there basically aren't any ways to respond to what the students are talking about. This is from a public health standpoint, a four alarm, and we've got to deal with it. So if you'll get me a phone and an email, and of course, we're pushing hard for Biden to do as much relief as he can by executive order, just as you say. But I'm looking for some new policies to help folks in these crucial professions. And mental health and nursing are right up at the top of the list. You probably saw this year. We had the spectacle of the traveling nurse. Did you follow this? The traveling nurse is someone who you know, really is dedicated to their community, but just doesn't have enough money to pay their bills. So they just travel and they can make enormous sums of money and it completely distorts the even 
it even makes the current system more broken because it distorts it because people aren't getting the money they need to pay the rent, buy groceries, um, and guess what? Pay off, you know, student loans and likes. So um, I guess my message is I hear loud and clear what you're saying in terms of how this is hurting people. We're gonna push as hard to get as much relief from Biden as we possibly can by this executive order administratively, you know, what he has the authority, you know, to do. And then I'm looking personally as chairman of the finance committee in terms of these um, areas that are really underserved, like the one you're going into. Thank God you're doing it, um, where you could get some real relief both on the uh, back end with your debts, but I'm also looking at tuition relief on the front end. Great, thank you so much. And you know, just kind of to, to piggyback on what you were saying, um, yes, the, the mental health need is um, huge, especially- Staggering, in, staggering. In, yes, in, in Curry County, it's, it's, it's abysmal. Um, um, the, the lack of resources here. Um, and so I, I think that would be a great carrot for people for sure. Um, and also um, I, I would love to see reform in, in nursing. Um, my husband's a nurse and actually he works at the local hospital here. Um, and they, they keep bringing on like several traveling nurses who are, you know, earning like triple what he's earning. And, but he's, you know, he's steady, reliable employee, but he's like, gosh, and he keeps getting cut hours. Um, but he's, you know, thinking of looking elsewhere. It's like, gosh, that seems like really simple. Like, why don't we, you know, give raises to the people who are committed to staying in one spot. But so yeah, really good points. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate your work and, and, meeting with us today. I, I, I hope we'll have a message for you on both fronts here shortly. One, that we've gotten additional relief that the president can do by executive order administratively that responds to getting help to people quickly. And then I'm, I'm gonna really make a, a push for more relief on the public service side. And I'm looking at essentially, you know, public service cancellation so that you get people out from under these gigantic boulders that weigh them down as they try to get on with their life. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Holly. Uh, so we are gonna go to a few questions from folks online. It sounds like a little bit later, we're gonna have someone from the Coast Community Health Center. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, let's go to a question from Andrew on Facebook who asks, uh, Senator, question on the lack of inclusion on nuclear energy production on green energy bills. Why is this form of energy production left out of productive debates on adopting electrification while the greatest returns economically are not seen until later in their life cycle? They have been proven to be safe with a greater reliability for stable outputs and more clean than windmill and solar cell production. Well, for, first of all, with respect to their not being included, I, I'd say to our, our caller respectfully, that's not the case because the leading bill in the Senate is my bill, the Clean Energy for America bill, which takes the 44 current provisions on tax law, we throw them in the garbage can, and we say, instead of those 44, we'll have one for clean energy, one for clean transportation, one for energy efficiency. And we specifically, specifically make nuclear eligible, number one. And what we say 
is that we're going to be technologically neutral. So the more you reduce carbon emissions, the bigger your tax savings. So the gentleman who's calling on the nuclear front, I hope will be uh, pleased with that response. Terrific. Well, thanks for the question, Andrew. It looks like we do have uh, Linda Maxson from the Coast Community Health Center, uh, who is connecting now. Well, and, and as soon as Linda gets on, she's going to do an audio, apparently. Or... Hey, Linda, do we have you? I'll go to another online question while she gets connected. Um, so we have a question from Joseph who asks, uh, when will the SSI Restoration Act be discussed and voted on? Well, I'm pleased that people are asking about it. The SSI program is just hugely complicated, very much outdated. It's got an application of 20 pages. You need a whole bunch of legal rocket scientists just to fill it, fill it out. And what I'm uh, supporting is the SSI Restoration Act, which pretty much brings SSI, Supplemental Security Income, into the 21st century, makes the program simpler. It raises the income resource limits, eliminates uh, the penalty for getting a little help. It's called in-kind from families and friends and uh, uh, would let SSI folks uh, live with dignity. I'm trying to get bipartisan support for it. That's gonna be key. And we're working with House and Senators House and Senate members to do that and get towards uh, the finish line. Anybody who's listening to this and wants people on SSI to be part of a modern 21st century program and get treated with dignity, please call your legislators and make sure it's on both sides of the aisle. Terrific. Well, thanks for the question, Joseph. It uh, looks like we do have Linda with the Coast Community Health Center with us. And Nathan, before sure, sure. Linda speaks, let me just say that you all should know that Linda and all the people at the health center where I'm sitting right now in Port Orford, they're wearing a size seven halo because they were there week after week, month after month, stepping up to deal with as challenging a time as I've lived through in terms of um, COVID. And we should be so grateful to them. They gave me a little tour of, uh, of the wonderful health facility I'm sitting in um, earlier. And I uh, see uh, one of Linda's uh, compatriots. Ann, is that you sitting there? Mm -hmm. yeah. Great. Ann is, is a physician who's dedicated her life to, to public health. We're so appreciative of, of her. And people like Linda and, and Maxon uh, and Linda and Ann could you know go off to cities and stuff and make you know, big, big salaries. And what they're doing is making it clear they love this community. So for Linda and Ann, big thanks. And please tell the community what you'd like them, like them to know. Well, thank you very much, Senator. We're pleased to have our team here and welcome you. Uh, two years in the making to get our facility uh, operating here uh, with the support of all of our legislators and being able to serve the community and meet the need integrating in behavioral health services and primary care services, addiction services, and all of the wraparound 
Uh, that's what we do as a federally qualified health center. Um, we had a, a question in terms of housing. Um, that really is our next step as Dr. Kellogg and our team discuss how we can care for patients. Uh, once we provide the medical and behavioral health services, the wraparound services of housing is such a critical need in the area. And I'd just like to ask you uh, what we see in the future in terms of both federal as well as um, uh, state support for housing. Well, Linda, tell me a little bit about the kind of housing that you want to get uh, the focus first, because when I've tried to do, and I have a piece of legislation called the DASH Act, decent, affordable, safe housing for all, and in the metropolitan areas, usually what I hear about are making sure there's shelter for uh, homeless folks. Uh, we have a real crunch for middle income housing, you know, because you've got like a firefighter and a nurse. So I proposed something called MITEC, the Middle Income Housing Tax Credit. You've heard probably of LITEC, Low Income Housing Tax Credit. I proposed, you know, MITEC. So tell me what would be of biggest help for you also for, you know, folks who, you know, have been dreaming of building a place or getting a place and housing is so, you know, expensive. Um, we have some programs to try to help cut red tape through that, through the e-signature law and the like. So tell me what kind of housing would be most helpful to you? Because right now, people are having trouble dreaming of getting anything that's a good shelter over their head, and we're trying to uh, respond to that. So, Senator, thank you. I think that you are are right on in terms of the types of housing. I will say from an employment perspective, being able to provide the types of housing for workers in terms of medical assistance, technicians, the non-professional positions, as well as professional positions is key critical. But I'd like to introduce Dr. Ann Kellogg, our chief medical officer in terms of responding to kinds of housing that support our patients in the cycle of care. Great, Dr. Ann. Yes, I mean, certainly we have our most vulnerable um, patients um, or really many of our patients don't have adequate housing. Um, I have a number of patients who live and essentially sheds um, without electricity and plumbing um, within the city limits of Port Arthur where we um, are currently at. Um, there just isn't an option and I can't give them options of even something that's affordable that they can live in. We also have a number of people that their only option is being in, in fifth wheels or other temporary housing. We have so many elderly um, people that are currently living in our RV parks and the non-accessible housing. Um, and it's just, they aren't safe. And I also don't have options for them. So what, what would be the best options, And I mean, I always kind of oper under, operate under the theory, and that's why what I was doing, Linda, was trying to describe some of the things in the DASH Act that go all the way from the base, most basic human need for people who are sleeping in their cars to sheds and you know, the like, all the way up to that person who's dreaming about the, the first home and the family's helped and, and the like. So, um, and what would be most helpful to you at this point? 
I mean, OHSU and, and Linda, you talked about it, has been stepping up and trying to be helpful on a whole host of these services. What would be, in, in your view, most useful now? I mean, LITEC Lytech is a really good program. Developers like it and residents like it, but it takes a bit of time to build. So if you said, Ron, okay, low income housing tax credits, that's under the finance committee. We'd like you to go for those. We'd also like emergency shelter money for what Ann is talking about. I'll say, okay, that's the agenda, then we'll go to it. But tell, tell me in, in your words, Ann, if you were in my shoes, you're chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, what would be most helpful to you? I think, um creating more senior communities and housing that's affordable on fixed incomes is very important. Um, I also uh, agree with helping the middle class and, and, our, and our workers and having sustainable housing um, in, as well. And then looking at those more transitional care housing um, for our poorest residents um, that are you know, initially stepping stone, smaller residents into getting um, where they can be gainfully employed and, and then move into the middle class. And I think, go ahead, Lynn. I think it's also infrastructure, Senator, because right now in Port Orchard, we have a moratorium on building because our water systems cannot support additional construction. And I know that our city manager and our city council is working through that in our room right here. We have one of our city councilors sitting with us. So it has to be about systems um, in smaller communities because the infrastructure has to be there. We've got local contractors that can be building. Um, it brings in economic investment into the community. And then from there, some of our workers, you know, the different levels of housing, integrating in those needs also from a community sense helps us normalize that yes we do have community members that have mental health challenges in their life and if those community members can be integrated into our community they become part of our community and so it is you know without sounding like a cliche it takes a village and if we can help our community understand that we have all different types of needs when we have a patient for example that has wound care when that patient leaves our health center there's not a, a lot that we can do to help them heal if they don't have a warm, dry place to heal. Yeah. And so being able to provide those types of housing in, uh, integrated into housing for those that are coming to our community to work, such as Dr. Um, Kellogg just hired a new resident that will be joining us in September. Um, we have to make sure that we can find housing for the workers that are coming into our community, as well as the community in general. Linda, you're, you're being way too logical for most of the crowd in DC. So let me kind of unpack a couple of things we could do right now. So apropos of your challenges to get more and get through the permits and the like, I'll have Molly McCarthy, our staff person who's worked with you all a lot. She'll talk with the city people about the infrastructure situation right away because maybe there are some ways in which we can reconfigure some of the money from the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed in the summer that uh, would help us um, do that. So we'll, we'll make those calls right away. Now, 
And you said something that kind of pricked my interest with um, with seniors. I think you know you know my background, work with the elderly, and I'm director of the Great Panthers. Are there any buildings in the community that could be kind of rehab, remodeled, reconfigured, something that could be done fairly quickly, would put people to work and would get the seniors the kind of shelter, you know, uh, Linda was talking about, because I mean, this is not rocket science. You can't heal if you're out in the, you know, cold in the kind of temperatures that I saw last night, it was really cold, you know, last night, everybody was um, looking for an extra blanket, I'm sure. So um, are there any buildings, for example, that might uh, be potential opportunities with some changes and safety precautions? You know, obviously, I mean, so much of senior housing is just kind of being smart. You know, you gotta make sure the shower has a handrail because if it doesn't have a handrail, seniors sleep, uh, slip. Then all of a sudden, you talk about your health problems. You got seniors, you know, who've really been been badly badly hurt. Um, any thoughts about some buildings that we might look at for the seniors? Yeah, probably the one outside the your window um, <laughs> is a great example of a building um, that uh, that really needs a purpose and it would definitely serve that purpose with square footage and being able to, to rehab it. Um, we've who, discussed- who, who owns the building, here. Who owns the building? A local community uh, member has owned the building. And um, one of the challenges for organizations like us is the cost of property on the Oregon coast. You know, I think that we have vendors and contractors available to do the work. Um, but the cost of renovation per square foot and also just the ability to purchase uh, property in this area um, is certainly challenging. Um, but that type of building right across the street, um, as you well know, Senator, there are many community health centers that are also qualified as high density community health centers in urban areas. And even though this doesn't necessarily meet a high density, um, community health center or special population, something like that, where we have a senior population right across the street from a health center, I, I think can produce probably the best health outcomes by allowing seniors to stay in place and live in place. And that's one of the areas that many of our providers focus on is um, what we call aging in place. Um, we all wanna live in our homes. Right. And that combined with even the ability to create tiny houses in a community where we could integrate in a community health worker that lives on the property and supports patients to get them to the health center in, a, in an area that is a distance not too far. I think there's so many wins that could be in rural communities as well as just the quality of life and the sense of belonging for, for our elder population. First, I think it's like a great first, place to live. First thing I'm gonna do is talk to Secretary Fudge and say, you know, as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, I want us to look at some of these kinds of opportunities that are right <clears throat> in front of us and just describe, hey, there's a big building, Ron, outside where you're sitting, go take a look at it on your way out. And, you know, if there are kind of certain kind of bureaucratic kind of touchstones like the density or something like that, and there's no reason why we couldn't um, talk to uh, 
the Secretary of Housing about a pilot project for seniors and something connected to um, community health centers. The one thing that would be good, guys, is if you could tell me if there are any examples that you know of where community health centers have gotten senior housing nearby, we can be on the phone to them right away. We can certainly research that, Senator, and I think it's also an opportunity for a demonstration project, CMS. Let's hear it for Linda and Ann. Terrific. I tell you to take the rest of the day off, but we need you so much that you guys are always coming up with, with good ideas, and we'll, we'll be on them right away. And thank you for the tour again this, this, this morning. And I, I just say to the community, we're so lucky to have Linda and Ann, as I, as I mentioned, you know, all, all across the country, people are on the front lines in small communities, understandably, you know, the, the people who do this work, it gets really tiring. And people are, when I did my tours of hospitals and vaccination sites, you know, people were just out on their feet and you can, you can see it. And the fact that you're willing to stay there and uh, keep pushing to get uh, health care to people who urgently need it, God bless. Thanks so much for joining us today, Linda and Ann, and thanks for the work you do. Uh, so we have time to take a couple more questions uh, from folks online. Um, I see there is a lot of passionate conversation in the Facebook comments. Uh, if you do want a question asked, please phrase it in a question that I can ask in short order, not a long copy and paste of something from another website. Nathan, uh, passionate, sure. passionate conversation is good. Let's let some, let some people share their passion with us. Uh, so we have um, Catherine, uh, who I think is echoing uh, the discussion with Holly. Uh, and Catherine says, I hope that the term public service is expanded. I am a contract worker, tested, test administrator for Oregon. I test the disabled for DHS and receive Medicaid reimbursement for my work. I am paid less than the open market rate, but feel that my work is important. Student loan relief would mean so much to me. And I, I want people to know that I'm going to be pushing to get as broad uh, an array of assistance as we can immediately through the president and executive orders and what he can do administratively. And I think the argument for writing a public service cancellation so as to address this new point is very good and I'm gonna to try to make it as broad as I possibly can because to me, when people are doing this kind of work that both of the folks who called, called about, about this, we wanna give them an opportunity to stay in the field and to stay in the field, they can't be carrying these crushing debts around. Uh, so we have um, a comment from Barbara, who says, thank you, Senator Wyden, for your longstanding support of the mineral withdrawal part, section five of the OR Act and the River Democracy Act. We hope you're able to get these bills passed this year. We in Southwest Oregon are so dependent on the rivers that these bills help protect, not only for recreation, but for drinking water, irrigation, and much more. They provide us with some of the cleanest drinking water in the nation, and we need to keep them this way. And I don't know if Barbara, was on when we talked about it earlier with with em these are top priorities of, of of mine and you know oregon now other than alaska so we, we have the most protected rivers in the lower 48 and i've 
put my focus on it why I've stayed on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee during my time in pu public service, because <clears throat> I think when we look at the economic multiplier of recreation, you can make the case for why it's so important just in terms of what it does for communities economically. When you say on top of that, what it does for people physically to be outdoors and exercise and walking on the coast and climbing mountains and, and, uh, and the like, showing our, our kids, you know, what the benefits of clean air and clean water are all, all about. This is not a close call, folks. So as long as I have the honor of representing Oregon in the United States Senate, this will be a priority of mine every single day. Great. Uh, we have a question from mm -hmm. Brett uh, in Port Orford, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit. But I think Brett is asking, um, in addition to the uh, changes to the tax code uh, you've discussed, are there other components of uh, clim climate related components of, of what was in the fall, the, the Build Back Better bill that might make it into legislation this year? Well, I, I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to get support for the Civilian Conservation Corps. I think dollar for dollar, this is a very smart investment for government, putting young people to work in, in, in the woods, doing some of the work we've been talking about uh, today. Very hopeful that will uh, uh, be uh, included. And if we can get the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, clean energy for America, probably a third one would be a special focus on, uh, on transportation. We tried to make changes in that with the Clean Energy for America Act is one of the three big areas of incentives. But I think we know that the transportation sector is an area where we have significant problems with carbon emissions. I think Secretary Pete has been trying to steer as many of the BIF projects, bipartisan infrastructure uh, projects towards reducing carbon emissions in the transportation sector. That'd be a third area. Perfect. Uh, and I think we have one final comment from Patty, uh, who, um, following up on the conversation with Linda and Ann, says uh, Mall 205 in Portland uh, should be turned into a senior self-contained community following the Danish model. I'm sure there are buildings all over the state that could be repurposed using union jobs to put Oregonians to work. The, the, the fact is that there are so many buildings as a result of changes in the economy and in communities during the pandemic that would be natural fits for looking at the kind of innovative projects that we have uh, seen uh, around the country and we ought to uh, deploy them in the model in Oregon. Mall 205 is a couple of miles from my home in Southeast Portland. And I think the idea of looking for fresh strategies, both with respect to Mall 205 or maybe Lloyd Center in Portland or other kinds of malls that come to mind uh, for Oregonians is very attractive. And I will tell you that my colleagues talk about big cities in uh, their states where very often the downtown really you know, looks like a lot of people not only left, but aren't coming back anytime soon because people want to work at home. So we ought to be looking at those kinds of places for housing. And I think the suggestion of malls that uh, could play a bigger role in terms of senior services is a good one. 
Terrific. Well, that is uh, all we have time for in terms of your online <coughs> questions. Thank you all for your uh, your vigorous commentary. Uh, thanks, everyone, who joined us uh, live on the conversation. Uh, thanks to Linda and Ann uh, for your joining the conversation and the work you do. Uh, Senator Wyden, any final thoughts for folks? Well, one one point I want to you know make because we haven't had any questions is we've got some major um, legislative efforts coming up when we come back. The new kind of effort to bring the Senate together around what used to be called Build Back Better. I mean, most of that legislation comes from the Senate Finance Committee. We haven't. Uh, talk about prescription drugs, but I'm leading the effort to lift the restrictions so that Medicare can negotiate to hold down prices and reduce the cost of, of insulin. Talked a bit about clean energy for America, but I also want to say we've got to do something about tax avoidance. Today, billionaires can basically go to their accountant and say, I don't want to take an income. Don't give me uh, a tax return where I've generated income. And the accountant will say, sure, you can buy, borrow, and die. And that way pay little or no taxes for years on end. So I propose the billionaire's income tax. The president has proposed a version of that. I think what he's talking about is uh, very constructive, very commendable. So there is a lot coming up when uh, the Congress uh, comes back here after the break. I've got uh, 11 more town hall meetings uh, to go in Oregon to just listen and, uh, and get the input from, uh, from, from folks. And uh, as I go, whether it's 10 or 11, I'm still trying to count, count them all up for, for the week. We want to make sure that Oregonians are heard. This is a time when we've got a lot of big challenges uh, in front of us. And what I've said, as long as I have the honor to represent Oregon in the United States Senate. It starts with listening and then responding as quickly as possible to these heartfelt concerns like we've heard about today. Oregon has come back from the pandemic in one very clear uh, uh, aspect is with the height of the pandemic, we had double digit unemployment. Now, some rural communities, that's still the case. Are pretty close. But what we know is the combination of inflation and homelessness and uh, mental health and the like has left us with a lot of challenges. And I just appreciate everybody in Curry County uh, participating today, giving me a chance to get educated on the concerns in Curry County. And we'll be following up. And I also want to thank uh, uh, Representative David Brock Smith, because a lot of the big issues, and this is especially true for Linda and Ann on the healthcare front, like Medicaid, are federal and state. And so when Ann told me examples about what sure sounds like the community not getting its fair share of Medicaid uh, funds, I follow them up. So when you have ideas and input like that, don't be shy about getting in touch with us. And, uh, and thanks again, Nathan, for making it possible for folks in Curry County to be heard. And folks, uh, I want you to know that this discussion today will be continued. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock in Yamhill County. Have a good one.